everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. This is another edition of To The Point. Lovely to be with you all. It was an interesting sports weekend. We are getting close to the NHL draft, which is Wednesday evening. Can't wait for that. We got a few NHL trades to talk about today. We got free agent frenzy, which will commence on Saturday. You can see long-term extensions for certain players such as Bill Nylander, Austin Matthews, as soon as Saturday. So the NHL world will have news and notes throughout the week. We are going to talk about some of the things that did and did not happen this weekend in the NHL. Going to react to UFC Jacksonville, a number of interesting fights, interesting results, and where does the promotion go from here? Keegan Bradley wins the Travelers Championship, his second win of the season on the PGA Tour. And the Cincinnati Reds have a new superstar, and they have an interesting team for the first time in a very long time. So lots to chat about today. But I want to start with the trade that didn't happen. And it's hard to talk about a trade that didn't happen because we don't know all the pieces. All we know for certain is that the Philadelphia Flyers, and the St. Louis Blues were trying to pull a trade together this weekend. And it looked like it was going to go through. Multiple insiders, you know the people, were chatting about it. And then Sunday morning, late Saturday night, it hit a snag. The trade did not go through. There will be no move. And you're left wondering, what was this trade going to be? It sounded like Kevin Hayes was going to be a St. Louis Blue. We know that. And that parts coming back were going to be Tory Krug, who signed with St. Louis after the 2019 playoffs and has been an injury-plagued, overpaid defenseman ever since. That sounds harsh. It isn't. Tory Krug's a good player, but the Boston Bruins got to a Stanley Cup final and said, we don't need Tory Krug. We don't need him. He's, he's a good player, not a bad one. But nevertheless, he left Boston, Tory Krug. He left Boston and went to St. Louis. And when he got to St. Louis, he was given a no-trade clause. A no-trade clause to a player that was coming from another team, which is what I want to talk about today. And just to put this into perspective, he signed a seven-year, $45.5 million contract with the Blues in October of 2020. That was the COVID year. Things got a little bit weird. That's why he was a free agent then. It was in the bubble or just about in the bubble. So that's what's happening there. Tory Krug. So the interesting thing is not, would the trade have been interesting to talk about today? Sure. But there's a more interesting angle to this. And it's about general managers and what they're doing. First of all, Tory Krug's a good player, but he's small. He doesn't fit the league currently, and six and a half million dollars for third or fourth defenseman is a lot of money. 
And I wouldn't have given him that contract. And that's why Boston let him walk, because Boston's a better organization, top to bottom, than St. Louis, in my opinion, although St. Louis beat them in the Stanley Cup Finals. If you push back on that opinion, I don't blame you. But you, saw, you bring in a player that has not been on your team. You want him as a free agent. He wants money. And you give him a no-trade clause. <laughs> You give him a no-trade clause, so when you want to move him because you regret giving him the contract that made no sense, now you can't because he's got a no-trade clause. NHL GMs need to learn something, and they need to learn it quickly. The no-trade clause is always a bad idea, and a no-trade clause should only go to a player who is top 10 in the league. And if, if, if the player's 11, he doesn't get one. Matthew Kachuk could get a no-trade clause from the Florida Panthers because he's a top 10 player. David Pasternak or the Bruins, right in that gray area, I'm okay with him getting one. Here's where the, the line cuts off. Morgan Riley should not have a no-trade clause. Cole Caulfield should not have a no-trade clause. Alex DeBrincat, Player X. These players that are good players, but they're not elite, never should be getting... Hand out no-trade clauses. Like they're fucking... Tic Tacs. To put this into a better perspective, NHL GMs hand out no trade clauses like Oprah handed out vehicles. You get a no trade clause, you get a no trade clause, you get a no trade clause, and it makes no sense. We want to sign you for now, but then we want to move you when we actually know that you're not that good of a player. We want to get better. Oh, wait, we can't because the stupidity of what we did two years ago, is screwing us now. Why? Why give out no trade clauses to fringe all-stars? Why give out no trade clauses to players that aren't worth it? Tory Krug? did nothing wrong this weekend. He said no. He said, I'm not going to Philadelphia, and I don't blame him one bit. Because it was his right, and St. Louis was stupid enough to give him a no trade. So he said, you know what, I'm staying put, I'm not going to Philly, I don't wanna lose the next couple years and get paid to do it. I wanna stay here in St. Louis, where I at least have a chance to compete. Nothing wrong with that. He was getting crushed online. Why? You know who should be crushing? Doug Armstrong, the brilliant GM who gives out no trade clauses like nobody else. These are the no trade clauses around the NHL currently. 
I could go by teams and it's disgusting. Cam Fowler, John Gibson, 10 team. Dmitry Kulikov, Shattenkirk, Derek Forbert, Nick Foligno. <laughs> no movement clauses. Caliposo, no trade. Wow. John Huberto, why not? And Nazem Kadri and Jacob Markstrom on the Calgary Flames. Good luck with that, Craig Conroy. But I want to get down to St. Louis because I could go through every team. I got it pulled up here. I wanted to pull this up because it's just how staggering and how much it happens. By the way, <laughs> you know this is no trade? Kevin Hayes, but he was willing to go to St. Louis because he wants the hell out. Here's St. Louis's no trades currently. Jordan Bennington. Oh, yeah, he earned one. Jordan Bennington. Yeah, oh, yeah. The guy who can't stand the ice. Bad temper, complete snapshot. Yeah, let's give him a no trade. Makes sense. Pavel Buchnevich, of course, why not? Justin Falk, Tori Krug, Colton Pareko, Brandon Saad, Marco Scandella, my fuck, and Braden Shen. One, two, three, four, five, six, eight. Eight players on their roster. That's who they were giving out to, no trade clauses, from Doug, Ar Doug Armstrong. What are you doing, Doug? What are you doing? In NHL, what are you doing? And it, the, the, the player can only get the no trade if you give in. If you give in to the player... If you have to give out a no trade to a player for him to come to your team, you're already screwed. You're already fucked because they don't want to be there anyway. They want the money that you're offering and an ability to control their destination. Just say no. Sorry, not giving you a no trade. Not giving you a no move because we don't care. This happens around the league. Victor Hedman, Pat Maroon, no trade. Nick Paul. TJ Brody in Toronto. Callie Yarncroke has a 10-team no trade. Jake McCabe, Matt Murray. No movement clauses. Morgan Riley and John Tavares. <laughs> Boy, that Tavares no no movement clause that hurts. It's even more powerful than a no trade. Now maybe in the end, St. Louis will look back at this and say this was a blessing in disguise. We didn't get Kevin Hayes. We kept Tory Krug, and it was better for our organization. Maybe they'll look at it that way. But as of right now, Doug Armstrong wanted to pull off this deal and Danny Breer wanted to pull off the deal in Philly. And it's not done because of the stupidity of Doug Armstrong, period. 
he gives out these no trades, no moves, with reckless abandon of what his future might look like. And he's talked about being this great GM. Everybody likes him. No shit, everybody likes him because they get whatever they want with him at the helm. Some of these players coming up, I'm really curious to see what happens in free agency. Dmitry Orlov is the top free agent available. It's not a great free agent class. He's number one on the board. Does he get a no trade? Does he get a no move? Based on the league, he'll get one because he was the best player available. Is there any situation where Dmitry Orlov should get a no trade or no movement clauses? Hell no. He's not a number one. He's not a number two. I would argue he's not a number three defenseman. That means you don't get it. I'll even put this more crystal clear. William Nylander might sign an extension with the Leafs. He should not get a no trade. He should not get a partial no trade. He should get nothing. Nothing. Not a 10, not a 10 team, not an 18. Because he's not a top 10 player in the league. You got a superstar on your team? Okay, give him one. Give him one. Give in. We got to give him one to keep him here. He wants to be here. So, you know what? We'll protect his interests and we'll keep him here. Other than the superstar, no. No. I love Braden Point. He's one of my favorite players. He should not have a no trade. He should not have a no move. Mitch Marner is a great player. He should not have a no trade. He should not have a no move. Although he has a no move, that kicks in in about four days from now. Thanks, Kyle. That's what's happening here. Around the league, you can blame it on the salary cap. That's why these trades don't happen. Sometimes it is a salary cap. And it's easy to blame Gary Bettman and, oh, we can't do anything and we're strapped and, oh, the league's so, it's so easy to predict. Well, maybe it's the GMs screwing themselves. Maybe it's the GMs making it difficult to make a trade because of the stupidity of your past actions. In life, I try to learn from my mistakes. I try to look at a situation and say, what did I do here? How did I fail? How can I not fail the next time? Doug Armstrong, Kyle Dubas, Brad Tree Living, all these GMs, Julian Breezewall, Steve Eisenman, Jim Benning, Kelly McCrimmon, Get the job because you're good at it. But if you want to constantly be competing, which is the narrative we hear, and for the most part, it's true in the NHL because teams that are old, that have no business trying to compete, continue to try. That I've talked about many times here. You know what I'm talking about. They make it difficult for themselves to try to compete or move off bad contracts and reboot tank because of past mistakes. Now this deal may come through. Maybe Tory Krug says I'll accept the deal if I don't end up in Philly. 
Is there another location I can end up at that I'll be happier? That's still a possibility, but this trade has been, been over 48 hours and nothing's happened. And Tory Krug has done exactly what he should. He's doing what's best for Tory Krug. And in life, you should do what's best for you because nobody else is going to do what's best for you. They're going to do what's best for them. They're living life the right way. These idiots gave you a no-trade clause because when they signed you, they wanted you to play in St. Louis for that whole seven years. Or at least they said, well, because they give you a no-trade, you have the ability to play there the rest of that seven years if you want. And the organization has nobody to blame but themselves for dishing out a no-trade to a fringe defenseman who's small, who isn't based for the playoffs, and has been deteriorating physically and on the ice the last three years. It's not shame on Tory Crew. It's shame on Doug Armstrong and the St. Louis Blues for doing this. You want this trade bad enough? You want Travis Anheim? You want Kevin Hayes? Find a third team that makes Tory Krug happy. Otherwise, shove it. Shove it and learn from your mistakes. And don't dish them out like candy on fucking Halloween to every kid. There's also a whole lot of rumors about Pierre-Luc Dubois going to the Los Angeles Kings. Those were sparked further on Saturday when Los Angeles traded Sean Dursey, a promising young defenseman, to the Arizona Coyotes for a 2024 second-round pick. This cleared $1.7 million in cap space. Los Angeles did this earlier in the offseason as well when they flipped Calvin Peterson to Philadelphia, giving away draft picks so that they could move out some cap and see what they can do. No deal is done yet. It still sounds like the Montreal Canadiens are in the running for Pierre-Luc Dubois. Earlier this morning's reported he has not been given permission to speak with Los Angeles about a long-term extension, so it's a sign-and-trade as a part of this deal. To me, that's the holdup. For Winnipeg, they should want this to be a sign-and-trade because they will get more in return. So they should allow these conversations to happen. Because Pierre-Luc Dubois is not coming back. He wants out of Winnipeg. He doesn't want to be there anymore. He... He didn't want to be in Winnipeg the second he got there from Columbus, another place he didn't want to be. Now, is Pierre-Luc Dubois a great teammate? Is Pierre-Luc Dubois a guy that's all in? You can question that he isn't. It's been Pierre-Luc Dubois unhappy his entire career. At times, his play lagged, but I like him as a player. I think he's a really, I think he's a good center. He fits the game, and I think he's going to be, you get him into the postseason, I think he can be a factor. And the Los Angeles Kings are being aggressive at trying to get better quickly. They got a veteran coach. They got some young players with some veterans on that team like Andre Kopitar, Drew Doughty, who have won Stanley Cups before. 
Dubal makes sense on this team as the long-term centerman. But there's still work to be done. I think we will see a trade this week of Pierre-Luc Dubois somewhere. And I think it'll be a good shot that the deal's done before Wednesday. Because I think whoever gets, who, uh, whoever Winnipeg trades, if it's whether you get traded to Montreal or Los Angeles, they want those, that draft capital. They want to make another draft pick. And the draft is on Wednesday night. So if you can get that draft capital, you can get another pick in the first round, that's what you do. So I expect to see that trade this week. Another trade over the weekend, the Colorado Avalanche acquired Ryan Johansson from the Nashville Predators for the rights to Alex Galchenyuk. And the deal was really, Avs took Ryan Johansson for $4 million a year over the next two years. He makes eight, but the Predators are retaining 50% of the contracts. So they're going to get Johansson at $4 million bucks, And Nashville gets him half of it off the books as they look to move towards the future, as they look to rebuild that team with Barry Trotz at the helm as general manager. I don't mind this gamble by the Colorado Avalanche. Ryan Johansson is a player that's had an up and down career. Great start in Columbus, had some highs, had some lows, has gone through some tough injuries, including last year. But you get a, a centerman at four million bucks. He's big, it's a new opportunity. I think he'll be motivated playing with McKinnon, playing with Rantanen. Another centerman up the middle, JT Comfer, maybe departing the Avalanche in free agency because I think he'll be more and more coveted because of this free agent class being subpar. If you can go McKinnon, Johansson, and then you throw in Alex Newhook, who I still believe they hope he can find another level and improve his game because so far his NHL career has been pretty lackluster. A non-factor, and I think his size is a big part a big part of that. In, in particular, the playoffs have been really disappointing for him. But I don't mind the gamble. Two years, $8 million. If you win another Stanley Cup, if he's healthy and finds that production, he's well worth it. It's just about him being healthy. Him finding consistency and finding the light, right line mates to pair him with. The Avs are currently the betting favorite to win the Stanley Cup next year. I find that a bit surprising. They... Gabriel Landeskog is done for the season. We already know that. Obviously, Kadri's in there anymore. JT Comfer could be off this roster. Colorado could look a lot different. Could look a lot different after this weekend. I think they need to make some moves to get better. Eric Johnson is leaving the team. They already announced that. Jack Johnson won't be back. So those are two defensemen they've had the last two years. Finding some more depth at the bottom of their lineup. The third and fourth lines need to find scoring. 
need to produce because last year it was McKinnon and Rantanen against the world. And somehow, even with McKinnon missing the first month and change, they won the Central Division, which is incredible. But Makar is not healthy all the time, and Byram isn't healthy all the time, and yet McKinnon and Rantanen can't be asked to do everything. Because eventually you get into the playoffs and you're playing better teams, such as Seattle. McKinnon's better than any player in the Seattle Kraken, but the Kraken were such a well-built team that it won out in the end. That the, the Kraken beat Colorado, which nobody would have predicted, but it happened. So I like that the Preds are, are shedding salary. They don't need Ryan Johansson. They don't want to pay him $8 million the next two years to be on a team that I don't think they plan on winning many games. I expect them to explore trades for Philip Forsberg, for even UC Soros, to see what they can get for him. It's a bad time to be rebuilding, to be quote-unquote prepping for a tank when the draft is in your backyard in two nights. But that's bad timing. They've tried to compete for a long time with this, with a, a crappy roster, quite frankly. And it, it's time to move on. It's time to make the change. Because they're not winning anything with this group. So good on Barry Trotz for finding a team that would take on Ryan Johansson. But the draft is on Wednesday. Looking forward to that. Lots of drama. First round Wednesday night, second to seventh round Thursday afternoon. Free agency this coming weekend. We also got Jordan Stahl re-signed with the Carolina Hurricanes over the weekend. I talked Friday about a report that they had a snag in negotiations, but they worked it out. They agreed to a four-year, $11.6 million contract, which basically will keep Jordan Stahl in Carolina the rest of his career. He's 34. He's the captain of the team, the leader. He's the shutdown center. He'll be 35 in September. And this should play out the rest of his career. He's already played 1,173 games, which is incredible. And now he go, runs it back with Carolina, a team that will be looking to compete again next season for Stanley Cup. They frame the contract so he makes a lot of money up front, over $3 million this year. And the last year of the deal, it's only for $775,000, which is a smart way to do business. The only thing I don't like about it, they give him a no trade, which I just talked about why it's stupid to do that. So I'm not going to reiterate the already excellent point. But this is where Jordan Stahl should be. I don't mind this signing, again, because you have money at the end of the deal where he might not even want to play. That last year, the contract, he very well could be, you know, decide to retire and say, I'm done with this. But I, I myself think of Jordan Stahl as being an older player. I remember him being drafted second overall. It was a long time ago he was in Pittsburgh when he won the Cup in 09. He's been in Carolina ever since. Bits and pieces of seasons, he's been the captain of the team. They had the era with him and 
Justin Falk, where they split duties, but now he's the the unquestioned leader of the team. He does whatever Rob Brendamore asks, and he's just a good soldier. But the Canes need to find scoring. The Canes need to find scoring this offseason, and it's non-negotiable. Because Carolina, the way they play fundamentally, they can win a Stanley Cup, and I truly believe it. They will have to make decisions on goalies. They have Korchkov, who's signed, who's played very little in the NHL, but I believe they like. Freddie Anderson's UFA and Antti Ranta. And they need to make decisions on finding scores. Do they look at Vladimir Tarasenko in free agency? I doubt they take another look at Max Pacioretty just because of the injuries. Jason Zucker in Pittsburgh. Nyquist, they take a flyer on Jonathan Drouin. Dadnoff, who had some success in Dallas. Do they splurge on Tyler Bertuzzi? I doubt it, just the way they do business, but it's there. Connor Brown. JT Comfer, who's a center, coming, who I just mentioned from the Colorado Avalanche. For me, the thing for Carolina is trades. They have a lot of really good defensemen on that team. And I know all we hear is that the Toronto Maple Leafs are trying to re-sign William Elander. It sure looks like they're not going to trade Mitch Marner. They're not going. They're going to re-sign Austin Matthews, and maybe they'll completely run it back. And I, that's the way it seems currently, with Riley and the whole bunch coming back. But if you can get Brett Pesci for William Nylander, I would make that trade if I'm the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I would make that trade if I'm the Carolina Hurricanes, because I think it makes sense for both teams. The Toronto Maple Leafs need a Brett Pesci on their team. The Carolina Hurricanes need a William Nylander to help them score some goals. This is a win-win for both teams because both players are very good, and it's a hockey trade. I don't think there'd be much more added to the deal because I don't think that William Nylander is better than Brett Pesci, and I don't think Brett Pesci is better than William Nylander. I think they're very close to one another in their value and what they bring to the table. It's different what they bring to the table, but it's what both teams need, and they both do their jobs extremely well. Brett Pesci might be in Carolina. He might be a defenseman you don't hear of all that often. That's more on the media of hockey not doing their job, including me. I'm telling you right now, if you haven't seen him play, he's really good. Just like William Nylander is a great winger. And scoring will always have priority over really good defensive play. And for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you might hear the argument, well, their defense is not the reason why they're losing. Sure, on the surface, it is not. But nobody can tell me. You go beat the Florida Panthers, okay, even if you get by Carolina, which I don't think they would, maybe they wouldn't have beat Carolina. They're not beating Vegas. So your defense might get you to a certain point, but are they going to get you over the hump? Are you good enough to win with your defense? With old-ass Mark Giordano, with TJ Brody, who wasn't playing all that consistent, Morgan Riley, an extremely high level, Justin Hall, who's turnover prone, and then you have a, a potpourri of others who you don't trust. 
Are you winning with that defense score? And if you can answer that question, yes, number one, you're lying. But number two, wow, do they have you sold? Does that organization have you like fucking, they got you like zombies drinking the Kool-Aid walking around? So a problem, problems are often everywhere, but it's the ones that are creating the most havoc that you, that you notice first. We can't score in this situation. This isn't working. Well, yes, but also, are you good enough to win with this other part of your team that isn't all that good either? If the answer is no, then you make a change. And that's the crossroads that Toronto is at right now in Carolina. If I'm Brad Tree Living, I'm not re-signing William Nylander. I am trading for Brett Pesci. If Carolina would do it, I think they will. Because you need that defenseman. And also, William Nylander is going to cost more than Brett Pesci on that next contract. So it's going to help you in the long run. Because as I talked about last week, there might be this narrative that William Nealander is going to take less money. He's only going to take a 50% pay increase. Whatever me and my father had this debate about it. He was going through his mathematical equation of what he was going to make. He'll be wrong because I know this better than he does. He knows math better than me, but I know sports better than he does. And there's no way... William Nylander. You say, okay, I made 6'9". Okay, I'll make 8'5 now. That ain't happening. That ain't happening if you're paying 10, and then you're paying 15, and then you're paying 11, and you're paying 10'9". You're not winning with that formula because you're not winning with the formula where they aren't making that much money now. It's not going to be no 8-5 and 13-2 and whatever else it's going to be for these contracts in a perfect world where everybody signs and they take a pay cut, they take a the dreaded hometown discount, which what does that even mean? I have never understood that concept, a hometown discount. First of all, if it's not your hometown, then it's not a hometown discount, point number one. Point number two you're in your you're in your career unless you own a company you don't care what other people are making you care what you're making because you want to be successful and you want to have a better life with better shit a better house better whatever for your for your kids healthcare this that or the other you don't con- you don't consider what pam in a pam in a sales pam at reception is is making you don't think about dwight you don't think about kevin in accounting you do what's best for you Because at the end of the day, it's your life. That's life, Frank Sinatra Jr. That's all all it is. That's life, okay, I make more than you. Tough titty said the kitty when the milk went dry. Boom, that's it. If you can get just as good a player at a different position, but he does something different and he makes less money, boy, does that sound promising. And sell it to the other team. You're going to get a good, really good player, which they are, that you need. You make the deal. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity. 
And that's what Carolina and that's what Toronto have both been doing. And that's what's so funny that they're intertwining. Toronto, let's overspend on forwards and let's have an adequate defense and mediocre goaltending. Let's try to win. Yay. They never win. Carolina, let's have a low payroll and somehow be successful every year because our coach is a genius. And let's see if we can win a cup with this. You're successful to a point, but you never get over the hump. Back-to-back years where they don't get to a Stanley Cup final with really good teams. So both teams are at a crossroad where they say, do we stick to what's been what, what we've been doing? Where we've had minimal success, but we haven't gotten over the hump. Or teams who made grave changes, who made drastic changes to what they do, Vegas, Florida, Tampa Bay, they've been rewarded for their stones, for their cojones, for doing things differently. Sometimes the good guy wins in the end by doing the right thing, but oftentimes it's the jerk who ends up winning. Because not everything's Downton Abbey, because I assume Downton Abbey's about a positive show, and to be honest, never seen it, never planned on seeing it. I think it has something to do with the royal family or something Britain. I don't care. If you've seen Downton Abbey, I apologize if that's a really bad description of the show. But maybe I'm thinking of The Crown. All I know is all that religious British royal family horseshit is all crap. So I digress. Long way of putting it, Toronto, Carolina... The trade is there, I truly believe it, and I would pull the trig. Because tr- for, for Carolina, if Svechnikov goes down, you don't have an option. You don't have a score that was proven. For Toronto, you have Morgan Riley. He's not a number one defenseman. Everybody in your mom knows it. How about you have a couple number twos? Because the odds of you getting a number one defenseman, unless you're willing to trade number 16, which I talked about earlier in the offseason on this pod, then you're not going to get one. You're not going to get one right away. Maybe Topi Nimala will be one, but he's 20. He's a prospect. He's not going to be playing at the NHL level next year. And you want to win now. So unless you're willing to trade the big fish... You can trade the smaller fish and get good value for them. You trade a small fish for a small fish, and you have a couple number two defensemen on your team. That's better than anything you've had. If you could go Pesci, Brody, Riley, that ain't bad. It's a good start to a defense score. Doesn't sound so bad. Doesn't sound, let's go Riley to Brody to Hall to old-ass man Giordano, to Jake McCabe, who was turnover-prone in the playoffs, and you go from there. Gustafson, whoever the hell else was playing down the stretch. The lily pad. I love a trade that makes sense for both teams. Because sometimes trades just don't. But that's what makes hockey trades fun. And a hockey trade, to put a a definition, 
on a hockey trade? Is trading an active NHLer for an active NHLer where both men are still performing really at a productive level? That's a hockey trade. Where both teams plan to be good and you both play in the Eastern Conference. So you'll see each other during games. How interesting. The odds of this happening, I'm going to go 10%. 10%. But I would do it. If the thought is I could get Brett Pesci or Noah Hannafin, I'll take Brett Pesci. Because we all know Noah Hannafin's available in Calgary because everybody is. Nobody wants to live there anymore. Nobody wants to play for that organization. As we discussed on Friday. But sticking to your guns and sticking to the plan. Okay. See where that gets you. Tonight in Nashville, the NHL Awards. We'll discuss them tomorrow on this fine program. But why do the NHL Awards now? Do we even remember who was nominated? Does it matter who wins an award after a team has won the Stanley Cup? Not really. But it's in Nashville, and I can at least applaud it for being in Nashville. That at least it's a good environment for an award show. Don't they do the CMAs in Nashville or something? So. We'll see. But that's this evening, and we'll talk about who... Who will win? Who will win? Who will win the awards? And what I either agree or disagree with on the regular season. A couple easy answers. The heart. The Vesna will be interesting. I think Eric Carlson's going to win it. I don't think he should. But he's going to. I'm already, I'm already mentally preparing for it in my, in my brain. I have nothing against Eric Carlson. Great looking guy. I'm sure he's a good family person. Good hockey player. But should he be able to win three Vesna, three Norrises? Pardon me. No. No. That bothers me so much to my core. But we'll, we'll discuss that tomorrow and any other news around the NHL with trades and as we get closer to the draft on Wednesday with different mock drafts and buzz around certain prospects. Let's pivot to the UFC. We had UFC Jacksonville this weekend. And it turned into an interesting, interesting card. And I'm going to start right away with the main event. I'm going to go through some of the big, big fights and big results. But I want to start with the main event. Coming into this fight, you had Josh Emmett. In this main event at Featherweight, Josh Emmett, who was ranked number five, and Ilya Teporia from Georgia, ranked number nine. Teporia was 13 and 0 in his pro career coming in and had shown great promise, had submitted Bryce Mitchell and was rising, just a complete stud. 
He said before the fight, if I beat Josh Emmett, I should be the next man to fight Alexander Volkanovsky for the featherweight title. And with a win over Josh Emmett, who was recently in an interim title fight, it made a lot of sense. Well, this weekend to me, he proved that he should be. He put on a just dominant, dominant performance. A, a judge giving him a 10-7 round. His striking, his movement, his ability to avoid significant damage from Josh Emmett, who has great punching power, was incredible. He moved around, the calf kicks, the calf kicks, the boxing was completely on point, and he decimated Josh Emmett, who is a worthy opponent. It was one-way traffic from the start. He beat Bryce Mitchell easily. He defeated Josh Emmett easily. And to me, he's got the flair. He's got the name value. And just his performances, he is proving to everybody that he is the next man up in the featherweight division. In a week Saturday, Alexander the Great Volkanovsky will defend his title against Yair Rodriguez. Then there's the talk, well, who will Volk, will Volk want to move up to fight Islam in Abu Dhabi? Will he fight again at featherweight? What does he want to do? Or potentially can Yair win this fight, which I'm not ruling out, by the way, because I think Yair Rodriguez is a very good fighter as well, and he's one of the most difficult opponents for Volk because of just how crafty he is. But when the rankings come out tomorrow, Ilya will jump to number five. And he will be the only man inside the top five, other than Arnold Allen, who's coming off a loss to Max Holloway, to not get a title fight against Alexander the Great. Holloway's had three of them. Ortega's lost. He hasn't fought in a long time either. You have Calvin Cater. I've talked about this before. But Teporia does not need a tune-up fight. He really doesn't. He doesn't need a tune-up fight. He doesn't need another guy to prove that he is the man. Also, he said the only way he'd fight before he gets another before he gets a title shot is fighting Max Holloway in Spain. UFC, learn from your mistakes. Do not book this. Max is fighting at the end of August against the Korean Zombie. That makes sense for him because they've never fought, and both guys are at different parts of their career. But it's a fight that will make no difference because Zombie is going to retire after the fight. Max fighting Arnold Allen wasn't all that smart because Arnold Allen was a contender for Volk. But Max beat him because Max is still an elite, elite fighter, and Arnold Allen becomes an afterthought. He can't get a title opportunity because he lost. Max Holloway winning that fight is not going to get a title shot because he's had three opportunities. Ilya should get the winner of Volk and Yair later on in 2023. Maybe it's in December in that card in Vegas because it doesn't look like Chandler and McGregor are going to fight. Maybe that headlines the December card in Vegas. Would make sense. But he is decimating every opponent he gets in there with. He's so confident. He's so crafty and smart. 
And to me, he's the next guy. He's never lost as a pro. And his striking and his movement is completely, it's so impressive. It's so impressive because he doesn't have a weakness in his game that I've seen. He can win on the ground. He can win striking. And he said this after his fight. He gave credit. He said, Josh Emmett is just a tough son of a bitch. He should have went down. I should have knocked him out, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't give in. At the end of the fight, Josh Emmett had one eye that he could basically see out of, and he kept fighting because he has no quit. But it was clear who was the better fighter, who was younger, who was faster, who had the better strikes. Josh Emmett was throwing wildly, trying to connect on something to get a Hail Mary to win the fight. It didn't work because Ilya was smarter and faster and better. A five-round main event, that five rounds did not look difficult for him. He stepped up and he delivered. Simple. He gets the winner of Volk Yair in 10 days. There's not another tune-up fight for him that makes sense. And sometimes you get title opportunities just because it's available to you. Because you make the most sense. Looking at the rest of the rankings, he makes the most sense. But credit to him, because Josh Emmett is not a bad fighter. He's no slouch. He went out there and dominated that performance. So credit to Ilya Teporia for his, just his output and his overall performance on Saturday afternoon. Also Saturday in the co-main event, Macy Barber won her fifth fight in a row in a, a really impressive fashion, knocking out Amanda Hebos, getting on the mic, calling people out, and she will jump to ninth in the flyweight rankings. And now it's just finding the right opponent for, for Macy Barber. They viewed her as the next big prospect, and she can still be that for the UFC. Because the flyweight division for the women currently is by far the best women's division in the UFC. Because you have Manafaro, who was announced this weekend. She will be fighting Favros in, in France in the beginning of September. Tyler Santos announced she's going to be fighting Aaron Blanchfield in Singapore. This fight was supposed to happen in February. It's going to happen now. Third and fourth in the rankings, Santos had a title opportunity a year ago in March. I thought she won the fight. They gave the decision to Valentina. She's very good. So is Aaron. You have Jess Andrash, who's still very good. Jennifer Maya, who's coming off a big win over King Casey O'Neill who's a solid fighter, Andrea Lee, and Yasmin Yavadevichis, who is the Canadian who just jumped into the top 15, who's showing more and more promise fight after fight. For Macy Barber, to me, I would book her against Lauren Murphy because every other person has a fight. 
she's she's not gonna get the Grasso rematch right away. She said she wants it. She's not getting it right away. Because Blanchfield is, is going to fight. If she wins, she'll get that title opportunity. I totally believe that. But but the fly the fly, women's flyweights, like I said, it's it's heavy. There's a lot of really great female fighters. I would book her against Lauren Murphy for a couple of reasons. I think she's going to win the fight, and that's part of matchmaking by the UFC, is booking a fight that you think will be entertaining, but also booking it against someone you believe that she will beat. Lauren's coming off a loss to Jessica Andrash in January. It's been a minute since she's fought. Macy's had quick turnarounds. And I think Lauren still wants to, still wants to, she's an older fighter. I think she's 39 now. So she doesn't have a whole lot of time left in the game. But Macy likes quick turnarounds. She wants to remain active. She said that. She fought in March, beat Andrea Lee. She fights in June. She beats Amanda. Could there be a fight in Abu Dhabi? Could there be a fight at Madison Square Garden? I think that would be that would be an exciting thing for the UFC to get Macy Barber on the MSG card. Against Lauren Murphy, that works. That's a sellable fight. I think that's a good fight. That would get... With a win, Macy into the top seven, and then you go from there. And then she really has to prove herself against the best of the best of this already loaded division. But an impressive performance. Her striking looked on point. And five straight wins is five straight wins. She has completely found her game again, and she looks dialed in and ready to attack the, the flyweight. Brendan Allen, Brendan Allen, a middleweight that I love, defeated Bruno Silva via rear naked choke, another rear naked choke victory for him. He was 13 in the rankings. He fought Bruno, who was uh, unranked, but again, a very good fighter, and he gets a win. To me, he is a promising up-and-comer, and he's similar to Ilya in the middleweight division because he's fresh and he has not fought Israel Adesanya. Now, he's not going to get a title shot next, but he gets a first-round finish. He looks extremely good doing it. So what do you do with him? Well, you could book him against Roman Duelise. Because Duelise is number ninth in the rankings. He's just fought Marvin Vittori in a close loss. He is a good fighter. and He's technical, and I think that would be a fun fight when it comes to grappling and seeing what they can do with one another. You could look at either booking with him or you give Brendan a really big step up in competition to see what he's made of. And you either book him against Jared Canier or Marvin Vittori. Izzy's going to fight Whitaker, Duplessis. Kenny Ears is coming off a big win. And I guess the big question is, who do you book Hamzat against? Is it going to be Whitaker? Sorry, is it going to be Kenny Ear? Is it going to be... I don't know. In, in October. Is it going to be Kamara Usman at a catchweight? I doubt it. I don't think Dana White wants to do that. But I don't believe 
that Kamar Usman is going to fight at 185. And the reason is, is because he will not fight Israel Adesanya. They're both from, they're both African. It's a, it's a thing for them where it's just about, we're not, I'm not fighting my brother. And I can respect that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Kamara wants to get back to the throne at, at welterweight, even after having three fights with Leon Edwards. But let's see if he can do it. Let's see if he can strew together enough wins or if Izzy is not the champion at 185, maybe something happens there. But to me, the UFC has to make a decision on who they want the wolf, Hamza Chimaev, to fight. Whether they want it to be Jared Kanier or Marvin Vittori, I think it's going to be one or the other. Because Costa's booked, Duplessis' booked, Whitaker's booked, Brunson's booked, and they want him to, he wants to fight at 185. Chris Curtis is booked. So the, if Kanier will fight Hamzat in Abu Dhabi, and let's say it's a number one contender fight, they'll do it. Then I would go Marvin Vittori against Brendan Allen. A big fight for Brendan to move into the top five and also for Marvin to prove that he's one of the best middleweights in the world because I think he is. He got dominated by Jared, but that was Jared's best performance by far in the UFC. I've never seen him like that, that aggressive, that technical. It was an impressive, impressive performance. But Marvin is 19-7-1. He's a really good fighter. He's never been knocked down. And he's lost to Whitaker. He's beaten Paulo Costa. He's, he's beaten Kevin Holland. Beaten Jack Hermanson. He's lost to Izzy. Those are the only... He's lost two times... He's lost two times to Israel Adesanya. Everybody loses to Izzy. He's the best fighter of his generation. He's one of the best middleweights of all time. So... The USC has to decision, some decisions to make at middleweight. They need to figure that out. But Brendan Allen is very much a prospect, a promising up-and-comer that I think they should be excited about. Also on the card, uh, Baby Shark defeated Jillian Robertson, which it was disappointing performance from Jillian from Canada. Her striking and just her overall game just is not... She has one way to beat you, and that's getting you to the ground. But if the opponent can figure out what you want to do, then you're kind of screwed. And Baby Shark just didn't allow it. Tabitha Ritchie. Some great defense. Her striking was a lot better, and she gets another victory in the UFC, and she, she's now ranked at, at strawweight. So it was, it was just it was a lackluster performance from Jillian her coaches were kind of saying it, that you're going to regret it tomorrow. But Tabitha just looked like a better fighter. Jillian's striking will never be good enough to scare an opponent. And I don't think we'll ever see her rise all that, all that high in, the, in, in any division because she's, just, she's got one component to her game. And if she can't get to that component, she's not going to beat anybody or any, anyone of, uh, of a high caliber. 
Uh, Neil Magny is still the gatekeeper. He defeats he, – he had a – he had a Neil Magny fight. It was up against the cage. He wins via decision. I think that was his 15th win via decision in his UFC career, which is the most of, of all time. But he beats Philip Rowe. Good for Neil Magny. Keeps his ranking, continues to fight, and he's he knows what he's doing out there. Uh, rude boy Randy Brown got a huge victory. Uh Chepe Mariscal, who's the new training partner of Justin Gaethje and Trevor Peak, had the fight of the night. Chepe landed 145 total strikes, 71% accuracy, which is incredible. Four for 12 on takedowns, had one submission attempt, and gives Trevor Peak his first career professional loss. Incredible. It wasn't fight of the night. It should have been. Should have been because those two completely balled out. Diva Nanama scored a, a viral knockout of Gabriel Santos. We're doing the Adesanya celebration. But overall, a very fun card in Jacksonville. Very fun card. I enjoyed it. Early afternoon start. This weekend, it's at the Apex, which is never exciting because there's no fans. But Sean Strickland against Abus. Magomedov, but the card is actually very good. That main five-round main event, you have Demir Ismagulov against Grant Dawson at lightweight. Both fighters are very good. Demir's coming off a loss to Armand Tuskurian, but he's looked good in, in, in his UFC career, but he's fighting Grant, who's 19-1-1 as a pro. He just defeated Mark Madsen, who was undefeated. He's defeated Jared Gordon in his career, and he gets the, his biggest challenge to date in Demir. That should be an interesting style matchup. Max Griffin against the undefeated Michael Morales, who we have not seen fight in a long time. He's gone through some injuries. The kid's good. He's only 24. Ismail Bafim, who knocked out Terrence McKinney in June, sorry, in, in uh, January. He, him and his brother both look like they have a lot of promise, like they're going to be something special in the UFC. You have the return of Kevin Lee on this card. It's, it's going to be a good one. Even It's an Apex card, but it's still a solid one before we get to the International Fight Week pay-per-view on July 8th. So solid, solid event in Jacksonville and a, and a good-looking one coming up. Uh, this upcoming weekend, which we'll talk about later on in the week. Let's talk about the Travelers Championship a little bit. Keegan Bradley, who is a very good PGA Tour player. Hits the ball well, very good putter. We don't think of him with Roy McIlroy, with Scotty Scheffler. But to me, to see Keegan Bradley win this weekend at the Travelers in an elevated event where Justin Thomas is playing, Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, Patrick Cantley, to see him win for the second time this season. What it really tells me is that we're in a golden age of golf where there are just so many damn good players on the PGA Tour. There's so many good players. It's truly incredible 
what's happening. Keegan Bradley won at the Zozo in October, which counts for this season. It was in 2022, obviously. But he wins at the Zozo, and then he wins here at the Travelers. Two wins this season on tour. And he's now in the top five in the FedEx Cup standings. Keegan Bradley. Keegan Bradley has more wins this season than Rory McIlroy. He has more wins this season than Corey Connors and Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler than Hideki Matsuyama, than Xander Shoffley, than Victor, than Victor Hovland now, Sanjay Him. But all these players I just named are damn, damn good. But he has two wins. It's, it's so hard to win on the PGA Tour currently. Patrick Cantlay had an up-and-down day yesterday, but he's one of the best golfers in the world. His ball striking is second to none, but he can't win at a major, and he hasn't won an event this year. Keegan Bradley has won too. Victor Hovland, Corey Connor, Nick Taylor. But you go through the names, it's just so difficult to win. Rory McIlroy can bomb the ball 364 yards off the tee, but he somehow can't finish. He finishes tied for seventh at the Travelers Championship. And it's a great moment because Keegan Bradley is from the Connecticut area. He grew up in Boston and he wins his home event. It's the one event near Boston on the PGA Tour every year and he gets the win. It's a great moment. But to me, it was less about Keegan Bradley that I took away from the tournament. And it's more just how talented the, the sport of golf is right now. Scotty Scheffler has not finished outside the top 12 at an event since October. 22 events, something like that. He has not finished outside the top 12. He had a T4 finish this weekend, shooting five under on Sunday, but he loses by four strokes. He's still trying to figure he's still trying to figure out his putting stroke, which is god awful, yet he has not finished outside the top 12 at an event. Because his ball striking is the best in the world. John Rahm missed the cut this weekend for the first time since 2021 at the Fortnite. That's what we're dealing with right now, but yet through all of that, through the incredible play, you still see a guy like Keegan Bradley win two events in one year, and now he has six career PJ Tour victories. That's impressive, impressive stuff. Justin Thomas finds his game a little bit. He, shoot, he goes 17 under, finishes T10, gets some confidence. Still finishes six strokes off the lead to win this, win this event. We have one more major this season. That'll be the Open Championship next month. It's always a crapshoot who's going to win these things. We just saw Wyndham Clark win the U.S. Open. John Rahm, Brooks Koepka. You think of the big names. And Liv brings on new, new people, new, new opportunities for people to succeed. But you also look at the PGA Tour and you say, my God, these players are good. These guys can win any given weekend because they're just that talented. 
But that I just look at the game currently, and I watch it every week. And I'll be watching the Rocket Mortgage from Detroit this weekend. And before, if it wasn't an elevated event, you couldn't find it wasn't interesting. That was the that was the talk. Well, there's nobody here to watch. And only eight of the world's top 30 are playing in Michigan this weekend. You have Tony Finau, Max Homa, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Sung, Tom Kim, Hideki Matsuyama, and Keegan Bradley playing back-to-back weekends. But Ludwig Aberg is a really good golfer. Sam Bennett, who's been the major killer so far this year, is fantastic. Zach Blair shot eight under this past Sunday at the Travelers. Joel Damon's always fun. But you go through these names. Cam Davis shot eight under on Sunday at the Travelers. Ricky Fowler's been through it all year. He's been having a renaissance year. Tom Hoagie's a very good player. And you should just be okay. You got to find the big names so it's fine, the tee times and people that are interesting. But if you are a hardcore fan of golf, you know going into every event, anybody can win it. And it's not that crazy to say that anymore. Because before you wouldn't have thought, okay, Nick Taylor can win this event, but he did. J.J. Spawn can't win an event on the PGA Tour, yet he's won two events. Not this year, but all in his career. So to me, the, the elevated events have created more money, have brought the best players to more and more tournaments, which is always a good thing. But I also think the play is getting so, so great that it's just, it's phenomenal to see what is transpiring when it comes to the other players improving their game to such a degree. I mean, for God's sake, Scotty Scheffler's made six million bucks in the last two months, and he hasn't won an event. So the money's improving, but all these players are improving as well, and they're showing up, and they're just striping the ball. It wasn't the most entertaining Sunday at a golf event that I've ever seen, certainly. Because Keegan Bradley was winning the tournament from about 3.30 in the afternoon. You knew he was winning. Nobody could catch him. He was locked in, and there was just too many potholes that players kept running into. So congratulations to him. But as we head into the Rocket Mortgage and as we head into another major in a few weeks, the game of golf is in a really good place, and that's regardless of the live merger. That's completely separate because of just the players who are playing week in, week out right now. They are all playing at an extremely high level. Major League Baseball over the weekend. Major League Baseball was in London, England. Did you know that? Cubs-Cardinals, two games set in London. Interesting. I watched a little bit of both games. Marcus Stroman left to start yesterday with an injury. He's having a great year. Should be an interesting trade chip for the Chicago Cubs at the trade deadline. Still is an ERA under 250. 
I understand Major League Baseball doing this. I understand sending the Cubs and the Cardinals, two of the best brands in the sport. The only problem with it this year is that both teams aren't very good. The Cardinals, you could argue, have been the most disappointing team in Major League Baseball. I would make that argument. They are last in their division. The Cubs are third. But both teams are below 500, so it's not exactly nobody's jazz to see this see these teams play but they're going back in 2024 they had ESPN they had Fox over there so good to see that at the very least was it a success we'll have to wait to see the ratings things of that nature ticket sales and if there's a buzz about Major League Baseball in London England to me if I one headline from the weekend about Major League Baseball. It's not that Vladdy hit two home runs playing against the Oakland Athletics. He should have hit a home run before June. I'll let Sportsnet Central and Blair and Barker actually do a good job on their podcast. Talk about the, the Toronto Blue Jays. I'll leave that for them. I'll leave them that content. You're welcome. If I had to pick one thing from Major League Baseball this weekend... It's the Cincinnati Reds, and the funny thing is the Cincinnati Reds lost two of three games this weekend to the breast breast, pardon me, to the best team in baseball, the Atlanta Braves. They lose two of three, but the interesting is every game was a one-run game. And to me, the Cincinnati Reds are interesting. The Cincinnati Reds are entertaining for the first time in a very long time. Cincinnati has a team that you can root for that is interesting. They have a superstar prospect named Eladur De La Cruz who hit for the cycle Friday night. After just being in Major League Baseball for two and a half weeks, he's hit for the cycle. He's taken the game by storm. He's stealing bases left and right. He jogs he seems to just burst out of the box he, he looks like he's going to hit a grounder the third it turns into a single just because of his hustle and overall effort and Joey Votto is back healthy and before the season you think Cincinnati Reds are going to trade Joey Votto because they're not going to be a good team but now he had, he had a two home run game on Friday and Cincinnati is in a different place than they have been in a long time they are first in the National League Central, but only by half a game and only lead by three on the Chicago Cubs. They are not a great, great team. Their pitching's okay, but they're interesting. Their leadoff hitter hits 300. They have this kid, McLean, who's batting 325. Dilla Cruz is batting 333. Joey Votto is back, and he's doing great things. I'm just, I just want them to be interesting the rest of the year because they're a fun team to watch play baseball. They just are. Okay, you lose two or three to, to the Braves. Everybody does that, and every game was one run. They lose 7-6 on Saturday and 7-6 on Sunday. You're losing to Matt Olson and the Braves. Matt Olson, who's tied for the lead in Major League home runs with Shohei Otani. That tells you that he's having a really damn good season. 
But I like seeing teams, I like seeing players that are interesting, teams that you don't expect to be good that are. Seeing, the, seeing Cincinnati play the brand of baseball that they do, it's why they made changes to the game, why there's more speed, why the game is quicker. It's just a better product overall. I don't know what's going to happen the rest of the year. I would have more faith in Milwaukee being great the rest of the year than Cincinnati because Milwaukee has guys that have been there, done that. Corbin Burns has been a gas can all year, but he's a really good pitcher. They have guys like Christian Yelich, Willie Adamas, Rowdy Telez, Ramel Tapia now. It's a veteran team, but they've been through wars and they've made the playoffs before. Or teams like Cincinnati are looking to figure out how to do this. But the National League Central is a, is a convoluted mess. The Cubs are three games out of first. They're below 500. Pittsburgh's lost 12 of their last 13. They're only five and a half back in the division. Cardinals are eight and a half back. Could they still make a push for the division? I think they can, even though they're not a good team whatsoever, and they should sell at the trade deadline. But as we get to the end of June, and the NHL news will wind down, and the NBA news will wind down, baseball needs interest, and divisional races are paramount. Baltimore is now only four and a half back of the Tampa Bay Rays. That's a good thing. Cleveland is back in the mix in the American League Central. Three games under 500, only two games out of first. Houston is trying to find their gear in the American League West, but Texas is still a very good team. Miami is nine games over 500. They're a wild card team. And the Philadelphia Phillies are starting to find it. Now, it helps everybody when you're playing the Mets. The Mets, who are seven games under 500, who throw away games, have lost eight of the last nine. They're a complete disaster. San Diego Padres, who are nine and a half out of first behind <laughs> the Arizona Diamondbacks. The D-backs continue to find ways to find ways to win, as does the San Francisco Giants, who have a half a game lead over the Dodgers in the National League West. There are races in Major League Baseball that are interesting to me that will be interesting to follow. The Blue Jays are an interesting one here in Canada because that's the only team you got, and they show every game. But tonight, if you are just got cable and you're watching baseball... TSN has Brewers-Mets. Sportsnet has Cincinnati-Baltimore. Two interesting games. I want to watch Cincinnati play because I want to see De La Cruz play. And Baltimore is one of the better teams in baseball. At Camden Yards tonight. We also got Brewers-Mets where the Mets are completely imploding. Justin Verlander is on the mound. But again, Milwaukee's intertwined with Cincinnati. They're battling for top spot. So you can track both games, see what happens. You also got tonight Shohei Otani 
Uh, no, he's not. I thought he was on the mound tonight. He's not. Pardon me. I thought he was against the White Sox. He's not. Should be, though. He's on the mound tomorrow. He had a great start last week. But to me, that's what baseball needs is just interesting stories, interesting races to get people's attention. And seeing players like De La Cruz, like Fridell, come up and make an impact, play with a different style. It's not just power-based. Like the Yankees. The Yankees find a way to win yesterday. Aaron Judge is going to be out a while. He's got an injury. His toe, he needs needed surgery, and he's been out a while already, and this team is leaking oil. Their pitching was never that good. But now you look at it, you got Glaber Torres, Harrison Bader's asked to be the king, Anthony Rizzo, Giancarlo Stanton, who's batting under 200. DJ LeMahieu, no thanks. Volpe, who's a kid, who's batting under two. They have two guys, three guys under batting, batting under 200 that play regularly on this team. I don't like that recipe. Now, the Blue Jays are a good team, but they need to prove it against a real baseball team. The Oakland Athletics are a factory of garbage. They might as well be feral waste. That's what that team is. They bring nothing to the table. They're not good. And that, that's, that's not proving anything. For Blue Jays fans, you got the San Francisco Giants for three this week. That's a series. That's a team that's playing for keeps. That's a team in June who believe that they can make the playoffs. They're ahead of the Dodgers currently. It's a surprise start. We're almost to July. We're playing good baseball. You go beat them. You give some, give some people something to think about. But you got to do it. can't just be against the Oaklands of the world and then everybody else should play like complete shit. But the back end of that bullpen, the Blue Jays pitching on paper is better than any team in their division, including the Rays, for that matter, including when Shane McClanahan is injured like he is currently. But we shall see. Looking forward to watching the Cincinnati Reds this evening. Tomorrow we'll react to the NHL awards, see what happens there. Any other news in the National Hockey League? Want to talk about the Buffalo Bills bringing back their head coach and GM, I find it interesting, just the timing of it, and I thought this was a season that these two guys had a lot of pressure, maybe not, in particular, Sean McDermott, maybe the Buffalo Bills are fine paying for guys that aren't on aren't on the, the team anymore. That That is not your head coach. Because I think if it doesn't go well this year, Sean McDermott's going to be unemployed. I could be completely wrong, but that's just the feeling that I get. Didn't get to the CFL today either. We'll likely just talk about that tomorrow. React to some CFL news and notes uh, from around the weekend. 
And here's some, not, I guess Frank Cervelli just tweeted, Yermo Kekalainen, and not breaking news, but he says the Blue Jackets are going to draft a franchise center at number three on Wednesday night. So that tells me they're drafting Leo Carlson and they're going to be passing on Michkov. So good for good for him. Good for him. <laughs> oh, we'll get more into him throughout the week. The great Russian player that who is going to take? Maybe San Jose will get just a, a great player sitting there. Will they take him? That's the biggest question. Would they be willing to take him because he will only be here in three years like every other prospect? Wait, what happened there? We'll see. Fun show today. Hope you had a great weekend. Have a great rest of your Monday, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll be back right here tomorrow to talk to all of you. Till then, take care. This is the point. This is to the point.